Hello and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. Hello again, Alan. Hi, good to see you, Kip. We've enjoyed some deep inductive dives into a rather wide variety of books of the Bible from Genesis to John, then Revelation and Ecclesiastes. Now we get to take a look, an inductive look, at the book of Ezekiel. Why is it that the book of Ezekiel is not really well read and preached on? It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, very few people want to preach on it because it's, it's basically um, considered an esoteric book. It is full of bizarre visions and strange messages and weird displays and events. Um, interestingly, I need to tell you that the ancient Tanaitic rabbis actually warned readers that reading the book of Ezekiel might be dangerous to their spiritual well-being. That's true. That's really true. <laughs> that it would be dangerous to their spiritual well-being. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not an easy book to comprehend. And so for that reason, it's, um, you know, people shy away from it. And again, you know, you come across all these bizarre things in it. And uh, um, I think I came across uh, a book um, in a bookstore years ago that was a commentary on Ezekiel. And it was, it was the title of the book was uh, All Things Weird and Wonderful. And I thought that's a really appropriate. But the other thing about it too is that it's a book about judgment. Not too many people want to read read about judgment. I mean, most of the book is judgment, so it's another reason why. But this is a marvelous book. It's a really, really great book, and not often read. It's really worth looking at. Huh. Well, what do we know about the prophet himself? Interesting. Interestingly, you know, he was he was taken off into exile uh, to to Babylonia when he was only 25 years old. In an attempt to understand the events that surround uh, Ezekiel, um, it's important to understand that um, the, the Babylonian Empire was coming to its height and the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem. They attacked Jerusalem on three different occasions. Uh, the first attack was when Ezekiel was, was merely 17 years old and, and some of the people were taken away into exile such as Daniel the prophet was taken away during that what we call the first wave. The second wave is when Ezekiel left, the second attack, and he was 25 years old. And he was in Babylonia by the river Chebar five years later when he was 30 years old. And that's when he had the vision of God and he became a prophet. Interestingly, Daniel becomes a prophet when he's 30 years old. Normally, people became priests when they were 30 years old. Hmm. Ezekiel is 20 years junior uh, of Jeremiah, for example, to give you the kind of context. And he was born into a priestly family and, and would have been a priest when he was 30. But in fact, when he became 30, he would never be a priest, but he would become a prophet instead. He lived out his life in the town of Tel Aviv, not to be confused with Tel Aviv modern-day Tel Aviv, which was a little town in Babylonia by the Chibar Canal. And his job, we know, was to tell people the sad news that they wouldn't be going home anytime soon. <laughs> that, was, that was Ezekiel. 
That's not a, well. I guess that would prepare him to be a prophet, wouldn't it? Give him giving people bad news. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Indeed. Uh, how how did he know he would be a prophet? Well, uh, the first three chapters of the book basically speak to us of his call and his commission. But you know, in chapter twenty-one, in chapter one, and verse thirty-eight, if I might just kind of look at it for a moment here. Um, this is Ezekiel by the Chibar Canal. He was just um, spending the day, I guess, in many ways, in sadness over the fact that he would never, you know, he was, he was trained to be a priest in Jerusalem. He would never be a priest in Jerusalem. And he was, you know, sitting by the Chibar Canal. It's a little dirty canal, uh, basically, you know, that uh, was an offshoot of the Euphr Euphrates River. And, and, you know, I imagine he was probably just sitting, throwing stones into the water or whatever, when all of a sudden this amazing vision in chapter 1. And, and in it he says that there was a throne. It was a throne. It was the, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. So that was his call to become a prophet. It, it did not happen in Jerusalem, which is ironic. It happened in Babylon. God was with his people in Babylon. The vision, of course, is never an end in itself, is it? The vision was, was something that compelled him to action. And the amazing thing, by the way, about, about, that I also find about this call was that God came from the north. Now, you remember Babylon was east of Jerusalem. But in fact, God came through the, from the north. And, and he kind of followed the, what we call the Fertile Crescent um, you know, north that would run north from uh, from Jerusalem, then east and then south, if if you follow my geography. But the interesting thing is that it was the gods of Babylon that dwelt north of Babylon, and so that so this vision actually is a vision of the throne of God of Yahweh, coming through the area which is the uh, abode of the Babylonian gods, hmm. which is very significant. Because God is demonstrating that he is greater than all the gods of Babylon. What does it entail to be a prophet, exactly? What, what is that? I mean, yeah, you, you well, hear about prophets question. and you're like, oh, yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, oftentimes a prophet is sent to, uh, to call people back to God. That was really true of the, uh, of the Old Testament prophets. But the interesting thing... Uh, for Ezekiel was, now remember he was in Babylonia. It, it, one could very well say it was a mission field, you know, mm -hmm. that maybe he was called to proclaim the good news uh, of God to an alien people. But in fact, that's not the case. God calls him in Babylonia to speak to his own people. He describes them in chapter 1 and chapter 2 as a rebellious nation. And it's interesting, in this call, he actually, God actually says to Ezekiel four times he wasn't to fear, wasn't to be afraid. Now, if God tells you four times not to be afraid, I would, I would suggest there's something to be afraid of, you know? And But four times he said, no, don't be afraid. I'm going to send you back to your people. I'm going to send you back to, um, to this rebellious house. I'm going to send you back to these people who don't care much for me. I'm going to send you back to people who have turned their backs on me. And, and, and the interesting thing is Ezekiel is not called to success. He's called to obedience. Mm. And I think that's interesting. You know, I think um, 
so often, uh, especially in the West, especially in the United States, I think, you know, their ministers are, uh, you know, are, are, are concerned with success. Mm -hmm. And there are so many conferences, you know, to, to grow your church and, and, you know, ministers will talk, well, how big is your church? And being successful is the big thing. And if you're successful, then you can hold a conference yourself. But Ezekiel would not have made it well in one of those conferences. He was never called to success. He was simply called to obedience and not be afraid. And I think that's, that's really a marvelous calling. It seems that God does that with a lot of, uh, a lot of his people in the Bible. Uh, Joshua, he's told to be courageous uh, many times. Uh, he is exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly, yes, yes, yes. It seems to be a recurring theme. Uh, when God yeah. calls you, uh, try not to be afraid, but when God calls you, I don't know, it might be a little frightening. <laughs> You're right, and it's not always a success. Jeremiah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that the Jeremiah's ministry was a success, mm -hmm. per se. I'm not sure if John the Baptizer's ministry, I mean, you know, he ended up losing his life. And I mean, I don't know that we would call that in Western terms if that was success. But, but in God's sight, it was success, wasn't it? Yeah. In yeah. Ezekiel's uh, ministry was success in God's sight. Not in numerical growth, not in how we measure success, but, but success nonetheless. What is the best way to understand this book? I think if we look at it inductively, we can see that there are four major divisions. I, I sense four major divisions in the book. Um, as you know, there are 48 chapters in the book of uh, Ezekiel. But um, the first major division would be the first three chapters that we've already alluded to, which I would call, uh, which I would suggest the title could be the, his, Ezekiel's call and his commission to being a prophet. These are three marvelous chapters, by the way. And then the second major division in my mind would be chapters 4 through 24, which is God brings his case against Judah. And so this is all about Judah's sin and, and their sentence. And um, if you would want to divide that further, since that's, that comprises about 21 chapters, um, you could divide it further into... The case against Judah in chapters 4 through 11, and then judgment on Judah, chapters 12 through 24. But, but basically, the, the second major division would be 4 through 24, which is, has to do with, with Judah's failure and shortcomings, their sin. And then in chapter 25 to 32 is further judgment, but this time on the nations beyond Judah. Uh, and then the last section would be 33 to 48, which gives you a, a future hope. The assurance that God has not abandoned his world. Because, you know, when you read through the first 32 chapters in Ezekiel, it's pretty depressing. And that's one reason why, you know, people don't read it or won't, don't study it or don't uh, preach from it. Um, it's, it's a lot of judgment. It's, you know, the, the, this is your sin. This is how you feel. These are your shortcomings. And, and, you know, by the time you get to 32, if you're not depressed, there's something wrong. But it remains the last several chapters, 33 to 48, where we realize that God never gives up on his, his world. Even with all the problems and all the sin and, and everything, all the factions and all the difficulties, God has not abandoned his world. And I think that's a message for today as it ever was back then in the days of Ezekiel. Yeah. And you mentioned Judah, but not Israel. 
Yeah, um, the case is against Judah and, and not against Israel because essentially Israel at this point was long gone. Jerusalem uh, fell to the forces of Nebuchadnezzar in 586. Israel had already failed and been attacked by the Assyrians 170 years before. Now, one easy way to remember this um, is that the Assyrians attack and then the Babylonians attack. The Assyrians attack at the height of their empire and then the Babylonians attack at the height of their empire. The Assyrians come first and the Babylonians second. And that's simply because A comes before B. Easy way to remember. Mm. So the Assyrians are the ones who attack Israel. Israel falls in 722 BC. Remember, we're counting backwards. Right. And Jerusalem falls about 170 years later in, eight, in 586 BC. But before Israel, before, sorry, before Judah fell in the year 605, Nebuchadnezzar defeats Egypt and attacks Jerusalem, carries off that first wave that we talked about, including Daniel. And then he doesn't finish the job because Nebuchadnezzar's father had died in Babylonia. So he needs to return to Babylon. And then eight years later, he comes again and attacks Jerusalem in the second wave in which Ezekiel is carried off. And then in the third wave, he lays siege to the city again in 588. He brings the city to starvation. Jerusalem holds out for two years and then collapses in 586. So Ezekiel is in Babylon during the final rampage on Jerusalem. He's in Babylon prophesying that it's going to happen a third time in Jerusalem. So the reason we're talking about Judah as opposed to Israel is simply that Israel didn't exist at that point. The ten tribes of the north have already been conquered, already defeated. They're lost tribes because the Assyrians, when they conquered the northern tribes, they, they basically scattered them. So they lost their identity. Mm. And there are only two tribes remaining, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin is such a tiny little tribe. It's basically, they're, they're, they're kind of subsumed with, uh, in, in Judah. So this, this prophecy is against Judah because Israel no longer is in existence per se. There's a remnant, but they're just scattered. Yes. Um, you know, the interesting thing was that the Assyrians, when they conquered a nation, they scattered the, the population among other nations and brought other nations and brought them into uh, the, the land that they'd conquered. So in this instance, when Israel conquered the north, uh, the Israelites were taken off into Assyria, uh, modern-day Turkey, uh, Iran, Iraq, whatever the case might be. Mm. Um, and those people from those regions were settled in what was Israel. And that's where you get the Samaritans. Samaritans are a mixed breed between people who were in Israel and the people who were brought into Israel. Hmm. Now, the Babylonians, by contrast, did not scatter. When they conquered a, a people, they kept them together and, and basically took them into exile as a block. And that's why Judah survived their exile. And they came back. There was still, there was, those tri the tribe was still intact. Hmm. Now, if Judah had fallen under the Assyrians then there would not be 10 lost tribes, there'd be 12 lost tribes. Okay. And if there were 12 lost tribes, there'd be no Judah, and there'd be no Jesus, and there'd be no Christianity. 
I mean, it's fascinating. Wow. But God spared Jerusalem with the onslaught of the Assyrians. And when the Babylonians attacked, the Babylonians kept the tribe together in Babylon. And that's why they were able to return. You see, the, the Israelites were so scattered and intermarried over the years that there wasn't an entity to return, per se, from Assyria. But we did have a group uh, intact from Babylon. What were the, the accusations against Judah? Well, Judah, like Israel before, had broken faith with God. They had, they had denied their covenant allegiance. They had been whoring after other gods. They had depended on other nations. They, basically, they were trusting the wrong things. That was, that was the problem. They were, they were trusting other gods, um, the gods of the nations around them. They had turned their back on God. They had broken the covenant. And so Ezekiel stands as a watchman warning of coming disaster. And, and nobody, of course, listened to him. Now, he conveys his message in unorthodox ways, ways in which they are, are strange to our understanding, bizarre even to us. He even acts out his message. He builds a model of Jerusalem. He, he cuts his hair and he flings it in the, in the air and goes around with a sword trying to <laughs> chop his hair. And, and you know, he, he cooks his food over, um, over dung. One of his sermons, you know, you'll read chapters four through seven, and it's just, it's just quite quite amazing and basically you know after he preaches that sermon he says that there are worse things to follow and and in chapter 8 for example he um, he talks about the temple how he had a vision of the temple and and he goes into the temple and the people are worshiping the Canaanite god and the elders are worshiping an Egyptian god and the women are worshiping a Babylonian god and the priests are worshiping a Persian god and and in chapter 9 Consequently, uh, we have the term we use is Ichabod, you know, the, the glory is gone. Because basically Ezekiel says, listen, Yahweh cannot coexist with other gods in, in one's life. Uh, and by the way, that's what a, what a message that is for today too. You know, we can't, you, you, God can't just be part of our lives. And then, you know, we have other, we have other gods, our careers, our finances, our whatever the case might be. You know, God will not share his glory with anybody. That's yeah. the message of Ezekiel. And so destruction begins at the temple, which is interesting. The angel of death comes and, and everyone is killed that doesn't have the mark, which, by the way, is interesting, you know, because in Revelation 14, uh, there's the mark of God and the mark of the beast. Right. And those who bear the mark of the lamb are spared. And so... You know, that's the same, the same is true here in, in uh, chapter 9. The Lord said to the, the, the angel, Go through the city, through Jerusalem. Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed. And, and then, that, then he says to the others, Pass through the city after him and smite. Your eye shall not spare and you shall not show any pity. Slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, women, but touch no one upon whom is the mark. Hmm. Very similar to the mark of the lamb in, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. So basically, Ezekiel is saying, God cannot exist with other gods. It is either God alone or, or you can't have God. And God then leaves uh, the temple. He leaves um, uh, Jerusalem. The glory is gone, Ichabod, the glory is gone, and he's off to Babylon. And so the future of the nation 
does not belong with Jerusalem. This is the interesting thing. But it belongs with the powerless in exile. Prophets in the Old Testament were looked down upon, uh, perhaps just that people were afraid of them because they constantly brought bad news, or it seemed to. Uh, unappreciated. They, they're unappreciated. That's, a, that's probably the better word. Yes, indeed. Uh, they were constantly bringing bad news. You have all this yes. litany of judgment and condemnation, destruction, and so on. Any bright spots? Does, does a, a prophet like Ezekiel bring any bright spots? <laughs> it's a really good question, actually. But um, uh, there's a glimmer of hope in chapter 11. That's um, it. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, you, you, when you get to 33, there, it's all hope after that. Okay. But, but yeah, you're right. I mean, 32 chapters, that's two, that's three quarters, essentially, of the book, I would say. It's about three quarters of the book that is about judgment. Again, another reason why this is not a popular book. Hmm. This is why it might be detrimental to your spiritual well-being, as the <laughs> rabbis used to say. Um, but there is a glimmer in chapter 11. He talks, for example, in... In verse 17 um, and in verse uh, 19, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel and I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and obey them and they will be my people and I will be their God. So there, in the midst of all this calamitous nature, all this great judgment on Judah and upon the nations, there is, there is this lovely promise, this lovely bright shining thing in the darkness. And, and, and because of the darkness, it shines all the more, all the more bright, I think. Hmm. Why so much judgment? You said how many, 24 chapters of judgment? No, 32 chapters. Oh, sorry, 32 yeah. chapters of judgment. Why, why so much? Well, as I said, you know, the, the, God's judgment on Judah extends through chapter 24. You're right in that sense. But the, the judgment on the nations then um, extends uh, from 25 to 32. So, so essentially, you've got from chapter 4 to 32 is all about judgment. Basically, three quarters of the book. Uh, and as I've said before, I think that's what, why the book is rarely read and preached. No one likes to hear judgment. Um, and, and the interesting thing is that I, you might agree with me. I don't know whether my other listeners will agree or not, but I'm convinced personally that the whole idea of judgment is something that is minimized today in our churches. Uh, we don't preach mm. uh, anything about, about judgment. Uh, one TV evangelist that I'm aware of just uh, will, will, will never uh, speak on the subject whatsoever. But mm. I think we, it is to our peril that we do it. Because the reality is, the one thing that we seem to have overlooked today in the church is that God hates sin. And it's a serious matter. He demands total dedication. So this isn't just, you know, social Christianity we're talking about here. God demands total allegiance. And if he doesn't get total allegiance, there is judgment. And there, there's a heaven, which we like to emphasize, but there's also a hell mm -hmm. that, we, that we tend not to speak about. That's why, I, I think that's why Ezekiel tends to emphasize um, the whole thing about um, judgment. Mm. It's a reality that, uh, that we don't like and therefore we don't talk about uh, in today's world very much. But it's there and it, we, we, it, it is to our detriment and to our peril that we don't speak about it. Mm. 
Well, these uh, the chapters are all pretty devastating. You might call it overkill, if you pardon the pun. What are the instances of particular significance within all of this? Well, Ezekiel is going to predict the end. You know, basically, you know, he's going to tell them, he's going to hold no hope out for them. Uh, there's no reprieve for them. That's the problem, you see. Judah is going to be destroyed. Jerusalem is going to fall. And, and there's no way to soft soap that. You know, that's going to be the judgment of God upon them. Also, you've got Ezekiel who tackles the, the false prophets. He accuses them of tickling people's ears, of telling people uh, what they want to hear. He likens Judah to a useless vine. He likens them to a rebellious wife, to a prostitute. So, so these chapters basically are a steady rehearsal of all the wrongdoings. He likens them to sexual promiscuity of two sisters in chapter 23. And then in chapter 24, Ezekiel's wife dies. God says to him, Ezekiel, I'm going to take away the desire of your eyes. That's a beautiful description of how he describes his wife, mm. the desire of his, of, of his eyes. And you're not to weep. You're going to go out and tell people again that uh, this is the inevitability of their sin. And by the way, that, that story of Ezekiel's wife, uh, the death of his wife, was the thing, the, the impetus in my life that... Uh, uh, brought me into contact with Ezekiel. I was a student at Queen's University in Belfast, and I remember overhearing several students, young students, um, talking about Ezekiel, and they, they, you know, they talked about Ezekiel losing, losing his wife, the desire of his eyes, and, and, and what that meant for, for Judah, and what that meant for Ezekiel, and what that meant for, uh, uh, and understanding, you know, God's redemptive purposes, and and I remember standing there saying, boy, I, I, don't, I don't know that story. And I went home and I read it. And that was my introduction to, to Ezekiel. And I've just, I've loved Ezekiel ever since. Hmm. Um, God says even in these judgments, listen, even if Noah was alive, even if Daniel was alive, even if Job was alive, if God is just, he still has to punish because of their wrongdoing. So yeah, they are pretty, de these chapters are devastating, but that's the reality of, uh, of sin, again, that we... We tend to minimize in our day and generation. In chapter 33, uh, there's some drastic news that uh, comes to Ezekiel. Yeah, Jerusalem falls. He basically says Jerusalem has fallen. It's the fulfillment of his prophecy. Everything that he's been saying is going to happen happens when Jerusalem falls in chapter 33. His warnings have become true, and Jerusalem and Judah have finally hit their bottom. And then we have the last major division of the book. Some encouragement, you said. Oh, yes. Lots of encouragement. Remember, we caught the glimpse of it in chapter 11. Now it's fully expounded. The nations now are no longer a threat to Israel. The nation of Gog is repulsed. The land is renewed. And the glory that left in chapter 9 returns. Ezekiel's leadership is vindicated. Oh, it's, these, these are great chapters. Is this a turning point? Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I would say that chapter... 33 is a turning point. Uh, the end of chapter 33 in particular, um, in verses 32 and 33, there's a love song. Um, he says, And lo, you are to them like one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. So they get this lovely love song you know, now that begins, that inaugurates this last section of the book, the story of the dry bones, you remember, one of the beautiful 
uh, thing that most people most people remember about Ezekiel, the valley of the dry bones that, and bone comes to bone. There used to be, when I was a kid, a popular song, dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones. You know, your <laughs> neck bones connected to your, yeah. you know, I don't know if you remember that song. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, uh, sure. but it, you know, it's kind of, um, I hear the word of the Lord, dem bones, dem bones. And, and that's, that's Ezekiel's vision of the valley of the dry bones. And, and this huge valley of bones they become they come together and flesh covers them and they become an exceeding great army this is a new creation this is a new hope this is a this is the the fulfillment of the love song these are new hearts god's spirit enters them god breathes upon them again the way he did with adam in genesis chapter 2 and they they're now equipped to be a great body of people who are his people you mentioned uh, gog and from magog uh, that's yeah, been... Gog and Magog. Who yeah. is this guy? Who is this guy? You know, th- there is a reference to uh, to Gog uh, and Magog in Genesis chapter 10, which is the chapter of the building of the Tower of Babel, you might remember. And basically, Gog and Magog, they, they're, it's a representative name. It represents the godless nations of the world. All the nations that have arrayed themselves against the people of God. Basically, God is saying that forever and finally they will be destroyed. Through earthquake, strife, plague, it is the complete eradication of evil. So Gog and Magog, representing this this manifestation of evil, will finally and completely be eradicated. And eradicated, what does that then lead to? It will lead to a new creation. You know, in, 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 in the book of Revelation, the terminology being new heaven and a new earth. A time when evil will be no more. And there will come that time, as the book of Revelation tells us also here in the book of, of, uh, of Ezekiel. This will be a cosmic restoration. In chapter 39, verses 21 and following, Ezekiel points out that God will set his glory among the nations. And that he will have returned to his people. And that there will be a new temple. And, and it won't be like the old temple. Because issuing from this temple, there will be the river of life. And, and, and it will have a new name. And the new name is Yahweh is there. And that's how the book ends. With this, and the name will be Yahweh is there. But this river of life is fascinating. I remember once hearing a sermon about it years ago by an old Scottish preacher. One of the most marvelous sermons I ever heard. About this, this, you know, everything will live whithersoever the river flows. And you have this marvelous picture. I mean, it's 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 obviously it's obviously figurative. Such a river cannot exist. It issues from the precincts of the temple and flows out from the temple down the steps through the valley of Kidron, out into the wilderness and into the parched desert. And everywhere, and and the, the Ezekiel keeps pointing out that as he sees it, it gets it keeps getting deeper and broader as it flows. And the point is, everything will live whithersoever the river flows. And that's a marvelous message to our weary, desolate, dried up desert of a world. Wherever the river flows, there will be life. Wow. So this new creation will extend beyond Judah. Beyond Judah to the world. A cosmic restoration. God's glory among the nations. Yes. And the name over it will be Yahweh is there. It's an incredible book, is it not? It's a marvelous book. So if you get past the the 32 chapters, you know, and and it's important to read those. I'm not suggesting you miss those to get to the good (laughs) stuff at the end. 
you know, the valley of the, uh, the dry bones and the, the river of life. I mean, there's nothing in all the scripture that is more wonderful than that river of life flowing out of the temple. I mean, it's just the most incredible thing. There's nothing more wonderful than the, the story of the, of the dry bones become, coming together to become a mighty army. And there's nothing more wonderful than the inscription above this, Yahweh is there. I mean, this is all the great stuff. But to get there, you need to understand that sin is serious. God doesn't want, God cannot share allegiance with anybody else. That we have to be totally dedicated and committed to him and to him alone for salvation. That's the great contribution of this incredibly wonderful book. Well, thank you, Alan, for another excellent journey through the word, through Ezekiel. Join us again next time when we will walk through the book of Romans. Romans is the great Magna Carta of the Christian faith. Um, if, if you want to understand Christian faith, you need to understand the book of Romans. If you understand the book of Romans, you understand Christian theology. Everything is there. It's all there. It's all there. The nature of uh, sin and redemption and sanctification and glorification, all the great doctrines of the church are all housed between the pages of those 16 chapters. They're great. Wow. Can't wait. Uh, please remember to send us your questions, thoughts, comments. We'll take time in an upcoming podcast to try and speak to those. Send us an email at podcast at thewordisout.com or ask your questions directly on our Facebook page. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with our next podcast soon.